0: Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions, and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories, and to feel encouraged connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. This week I'm talking with Penny Lacasso. Here is a little bit from Penny.
1: And so I had this epiphany three weeks before because I was like, how am I going to stand out in a, at a conference of rock star speakers? I'm on at 2.30 in the afternoon, it's graveyard shift. And, <laughs> you know, what's the number one message? Because people only take away one message. And my number one message is all of, always about if you want to make change, you need to get learn to get comfortable in discomfort. That is the number one thing that you need to learn because nothing amazing happens when you're comfortable. And so I was like, how am I going to convey this to a room of 100 women? And I had one of those moments, and you would know this now in the space, it it's like two o'clock in the morning and I wake up and I was like, oh my God, that's it. And I was like, I'm going to stand up there and I'm going to take my dress off and I'm going to stand there in my bathing suit. Because there won't be a woman in that room that's, that's never had body image issues, because I reckon every woman does, even if they're small, that cannot relate to how uncomfortable it would be for me to stand up there. Yeah. And it would make them understand my point about getting comfortable with discomfort. Because by standing up there and being that uncomfortable, well. <laughs> they could easily relate to me. And you know what? I had their full attention.
0: Penny and I first met a couple of years ago, just as she was launching the first iteration of a reboot of career. I hadn't spoken with her since then, so there was a bit to catch up on. Here are some details about our sponsor for this week before I tell you more about what she's been up to. A brand new product to market, Roy Mint Company produced the highest quality fresh mints you can find, and through a connection to local artists, have created an entirely different mint experience. Available only in select coffee shops, partnered locations, and online, you can learn more at Roymintco.com, and share their journey by following Roy Co. on Instagram. Once flying high as an executive at Shell, in her own words, Penny seemed to have it all. The dream job, the amazing house, husband and child. But she started to notice that something wasn't quite adding up. A values misalignment of sorts. And when she found herself without a job, she noticed how awkward she felt when asked the inevitable barbecue question of what she did for work. Fast track a couple of years and Penny has found a purpose she believes in and a way of working and living that aligns with her values and supports her well-being. On a quest to help 1 million women nail happiness in work and life, Penny is a living example of doing this with authenticity. Thanks for joining me and I hope you enjoy listening to Penny Lacasso on the subtle disruption of getting comfortable with discomfort. Well, the first question I always ask is, where are we and why have you picked this place for our conversation?
1: We are in my living room in the humble suburb of Paran <laughs> and... The reason that I've picked this place is because I think this place is where so much of my life happens, which is a bit of a juxtaposition to what my life used to be like. You know what I mean? I felt like before my old life, I was never home. Yeah. Yeah. And whereas now, you know, I invite so many people like yourself into my home Mm. um, because it's, it's a place where, you know, I spend time with my family. It's a space where... I retreat and, you know, go into solitude, but it's also a place where I love to work. That's yeah. probably why we're here. Yeah. And I love that I get to bring random people in all the time. There's something really nice. And I think what's interesting about it is people feel more relaxed when they come into your home, even if it's work-related. So with clients, like it's really interesting when they come in and I see a lot of clients here. And because the work that they're doing is so personal, and, you know, a lot of clients do end up in tears, especially in the first hour of sitting with me, you know, I, I think there's a, there's a real relaxing piece about being in someone's home.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love what you're saying about home there. I think best work that I, or the best working situation that I've had was when I lived on the same street that I worked on. It was oh, a two minute walk to work. Yeah, And just, yeah, it did make home more than this place that was a dorm, I guess. Yeah. Which it can often feel like.
1: Definitely. And it's so interesting how I move around the house when I work here Mm. and how I spend different time of the day in different spaces, depending on how I'm feeling. Yeah. It's really interesting. Whereas, you know, if you go into an office environment, you'll generally just go to a desk and sit at that space all day or you'll go into meeting rooms. Yeah. Whereas here, you know, I go where the light is. Yeah, Yeah. and so upstairs in my bedroom, I've got one of those big ergo, you know, the chairs, the big leather chairs, and I roll that around and sort of face it out the window because I've got a great view of the CBD in the morning because the sun's so strong, and I sit there and work, and it's fantastic, and then my office is upstairs, and sometimes I move into that depending on what I'm doing, especially if I want quiet space, and then other times, you know, especially when I've got people over, we'll sit around the dining room table. Yeah. And work there, so yeah, it's interesting how you move. As I say, to I'm very connected into how I feel mm. during the day, and I think that helps me work out where I'm going to get the best energy mm. to be able to do what I need to do.
0: You think do you change the physical way that you work as well based on oh, yeah, how you yeah, feel yeah. too? Yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting because. I've always been an early riser and, again, my old life I was always up at 5.30 going to the gym, you know, because that was the only hour I had free, whereas now what I'll do is I'll often wake at 5.30 and, like, I might set intentions for the day and not like in a weird spiritual, you know, that's not the sort of, but I'm kind of like, well, what do I want to get out of today that's going to fill me up energy-wise? Yeah. And sometimes it can be as simple as, you know, just get this one thing done work-wise, eat really well and be kind to someone. So I'd often do that and then what I might do is I might I might read something. So I'll get on and sort of um, look in pocket, you know, what's mm-hmm. of interest to me. So one thing that I can read that's going to give me something different that I don't already know. And then what I'll do is I'll go and do my exercise or I often walk down and take the dog, there's a beautiful park three doors down, take the dog for a walk and that's how I start my day when I don't have my son. Yeah. And I find... By starting that way, it makes me more energetic, and then how the day plays out really depends on like you say how i feel i mean i'm very action orientated i my last boss in the corporate world who was a vice president said to me, "Your skill set is getting shit done i've never met anyone that can get so much shit done so yeah. 'm I'm, I'm, you know i'm known for being productive i 'm very results and action orientated but at the same time you know i I set my alarm on my phone to make sure that I go to yoga a certain time because I know that if I don't set the alarm, I'm one of those people that can just work straight through. Yeah. And I can, if I'm in the zone, I'm in the zone, and my energy level can be high for four or five hours continuously if I'm doing something that I really love. Yeah. And as you know, you know, when you start to do something that you love, I often find it's very easy to get in the zone. So one of the biggest challenges that you have is that. Not that your energy is drained, it's that your energy is so high <laughs> yeah. that you know you can just yeah. keep going yeah. until you get to a point where you, you, know, you burn out. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah.
0: I've always said this. Well, I've got this little project in the back of my mind that I haven't started that I'd like to be involved with one day, which is to create workplaces where at the end of the day you have more energy and you're more well than you were at the start of the day. Like oh. you don't actually need to go to the gym and you don't need to compensate for your time at that place because it's just the way it's built is that, yeah, you do great work, but you also you're incredibly well just from being there. And you started to describe a few things about the way you work here, which seemed to allow that as Oh, my well. God.
1: I mean, I'm extremely passionate about workplace, workplaces, workspaces, and culture. So my last job in Shell was managing the cultural evolution of a business as it grew from 200 to 1,000 staff in two years with a world-first floating LNG technology coming on stream. So, you know, multi-billion dollar projects, 50 new people coming into the organisation every month. And, you know, I'm hugely passionate about culture, but I just think, um, oh, God, workspaces, you get me started. So I met with the um, head of people and culture at VenoMoFo Mofo the other day, great guy, and he was saying to me, I was like, what's, what's the utopia for you in terms of culture and what you create here at venomofo Mofo? And he said, imagine if we could create a space, that, a workplace that was a solitude rather than something that you had to endure. <laughs> yeah. And where you didn't have to leave your personal baggage at home, you actually came in and you felt comfortable. Not being the pain in the ass that overshares, but if you had shit going on, it was okay to share it. Mm, yeah, and yeah. I was like, oh my god, like why why can't we do this? Like that's that to me makes logical sense. There's a reason why there's so much anxiety and depression. It's because so many people are fearful about sharing it and talking about it. Yeah, that they internalize it, which compounds the problem. Mm. Yeah, and they also don't want to share it at work because fuck, you know, can I swear. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if you share it at work, then you could be perceived as weak or perhaps you won't be competent in your job, you know, but the reality is probably 80% of the population there's feeling the same way. Yeah. The other thing that in terms of workspaces, I'm currently reading the book Silent. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I don't. Oh, my God. It's so profound as an extrovert. <laughs> so it's basically <laughs> yeah. on introversion. Yeah. And my partner's an introvert. So I just, and I attract a lot of introverts. So reading it for me has been profound. And One of the things that it talks about is that workspaces are totally designed for extroverts, Mm. not introverts. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God. So, again, one of the jobs that I had when I was in um, Shell on that cultural evolution journey was that I had a $250 million budget to build a collaborative work environment, you know, a 10-storey building where no one had any offices and it was all open plan. And, you know, everyone was touting it as the next thing and everyone's done it now and everyone's living in it. But I read this book and I'm like, never once did it cross my mind that this doesn't cater to the introvert yeah,
2: at all, you know. Yeah.
1: And the introverts, when you read these books, are the ones that often come up with the most amazing ideas. They're often very good problem solvers. You know, you look at the Bill Gates of the world Steve Jobs, those sorts of people. Yeah, yeah. They're introverts. And we're creating workspaces that doesn't actually um, enable them in what they're great at. It yeah. actually, you know, if anything, detracts. So... I think that for me has been profound in reading this book because I'm like, well, how does that play out in terms of the workplaces that we now have? We're totally catering to one style of person.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And we want to be, you know, especially big companies, we want to be innovators. But the people who often have the most innovative ideas are the ones that are listened to least because they don't have the loudest voices um, and we're not providing spaces that enable them to be innovative in the way that works for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like. I love that. So yeah, I'm more of an introvert myself as well. And I, I had a year off work, went back into a co-working space and it was a bit jarring actually going mm. like even a co-working space, which is definitely a bit more progressive and, you know, lighter and, and supposed to be, I guess more on the friendly, relaxed way of working more about wellbeing. But even that I was, you know, there was still only a rectangular desk to work at, really. And I found myself gravitating towards the sofa areas, yeah, you know, and the quieter spots and sitting in a place like we're sitting now where, yeah, it was a little bit more secluded and not many people coming on and I can do the kind of work that I wanted to do there. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I love your idea for workspaces. I'm quite happy to take that offline and have a yeah? further conversation yeah, okay. about that. I, I think that the, reading this book has shifted my whole perspective on it and You know, I love collaboration and I love connecting with people, but as I say, I'm an extrovert. I think that if you could come up with a workspace that caters to both, and as I say, the collaborative work environments that I've seen and I've been in, you know, all of the big blue chips, the ones that have spent millions on it, they have, you know, quiet rooms and that sort of stuff, but it really doesn't go to the full extent that you would to cater to different, you know, to introverts as well as extroverts.
0: Yeah, the other thing that was interesting that you said about Vino Mofo as well, starting my own business, I've got three or four business partners now and we are it's a side hustle. So we're, you know, we're yeah. doing it on our own time and we meet around people's kitchen benches. But what I've noticed happens is that like we might get together for say two, three hours to talk through a whole bunch of stuff. The first hour is just catching up on how we're going. Yes. You know, and it is kind of, if there's shit going on, we'll talk about it and it'll come out it's like that stuff needs to be talked about first before we can get to the other stuff. We do the other stuff so much better. But that just happens naturally in that kind of side hustle environment. But, yeah, I don't know if it would happen at all in in a blue chip or a big corporate.
1: I think that's what's probably been the most profound thing about working in the entrepreneurial space for me coming from 20 years in corporate is, one, how much more open people are to talking about what's going on for them personally And sharing the stuff that perhaps is not going so great. But equally, the other thing that was really profound is I've never experienced in my life so much willingness, willingness of people to want to help you do what you want to do if you're doing something that you, you know, you're passionate about and you enjoy. And, you know, I'm stereotyping here, but, you know, my experience in the corporate world and I had a great corporate career. A lot of my friends still work there and I don't begrudge it, but often in the corporate world, you know, there's a lot of agendas. People don't generally help people unless there's something in it for them. Yeah. Whereas, you know, to come into the entrepreneurial world and all these people are like, I love what you're doing. How can I help you? And every day I get emails from friends who are in the corporate world that I haven't seen or not friends, but people that have been following me on social media who I worked with six years ago and they're like, oh, my God, I've been watching what you're doing. How can I help you? It's like, Wow. (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting yeah so yeah i think like you say like i don't have any problems in being honest the things that i talk about now in terms of what's really going on i would never have showed up to work when i was in my corporate job as an executive and sat down and gone you know what i really fucked up last night this is what i did you know i've just spent the last two months working on something that hasn't taken off people don't do it no and that's why i think there's so much like like I say, the innovation piece. I think there's so much that corporates can learn from the entrepreneurial world if they want to truly innovate. Yeah. Um, because you know, even simple stuff like talking about what's really going on is powerful. That's another passion of mine, connecting the entrepreneurial world and the in the corporate world. And I know there's people doing it in different ways in terms of helping startups get off the ground, in terms of corporates being their first customers, but Actually, I think there's a beautiful opportunity to, corporates are brilliant at the commercial side of business. They're brilliant at systems and processes, all the things that often entrepreneurs are not great at but they need, yeah? Mm. Um, and they're also great at managing P&Ls, you know. That's what, that's what they're good at. Yeah. So all the stuff that the entrepreneurs struggle with, the corporates seem to nail and they're great at. But the corporates are shit. Well, I shouldn't say that. Corporates aren't great. They're not great at innovation. They're not great at taking risk, They're not great at transparency, Mm. yeah, Mm. which are all things that the entrepreneurs are great at. So it's funny, I'm running an event with Cherie from One Roof next month and speaking on a panel around this particular topic and it's like what would happen if you could connect the two in a way where it was like cross-collaborative in terms of skill building and sharing of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, because I think there's huge opportunities there. Yeah. And the corporates, I mean, these guys need it. There's a reason these guys are seeing, you know, their, their growth, or their lack thereof. You know, they're in single digit, um, growth a lot of them and, and declining because they cannot keep up with the pace of innovation of, the rest of the world, you know, that these smaller businesses that are truly innovative and disruptive. So, unless they stop and actually start to look at how they can learn from these guys, I honestly think that businesses you will see at the top of the food chain, it might not be in the next five years, but in the next 10 years, is going to be fundamentally different to what you see now. Yeah. And I think you will see some very big businesses die off. I mean, look at the, the oil and gas companies. Look at the likes of, you know, AGL who are getting out of coal at the moment. You know, like it's, these guys have got to, you know, find a whole new business model and a whole new product range to sell. And we're not talking a small business that can afford to, you know, just pivot. Yeah, that's We're right. talking a large business that, you know, was making millions and millions or billions of dollars. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think the business world's very, the next 10 years in the business world is going to be fascinating.
0: Yeah. Do you? Do you keep quite a connection to the corporate world in that way? like do you, yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it fascinates me and it's funny, you know, I think someone said to me in an event the other week where I shared my story and someone said to me, why did you leave when you were in change and you could have had so much more influence from within? And I was like, because I actually think you can have more influence from the outside. There's a reason why large corporates pay consultants thousands and thousands of dollars for an opinion. It's because they're more likely to listen to independent perspective. than from someone internally. And that's what I'm now seeing. I think because I'm independent, even though I get them because I've come from them, but my whole world now is so different and I'm considered an independent voice who's connected into a lot of stuff that they're not, I can actually have more impact from the outside in. But one of the things, to your point, am, am I still connected into sort of that business stuff? I watch it with great interest and I also am extremely intrigued by the future of work. And what that's going to look like? Like as someone who's 42 this year, I see what I would call probably a lot of ostriches, which are professional people around my age. So I'd probably say you know the 37 plus age group who have done their uni degree, they've got great experience, they've gone into a blue chip company, they're sitting there on the $150,000, 200 thousand dollars a year, but they have got no idea what's coming in terms of automation and technology. And so many of these people, like I, I say, the white-collar worker of today is the blue-collar worker of yesterday. They are going to be displaced. And I mean, I know a lot of these people. I'm already starting to see it. I, yeah. And when I say displaced, what's interesting is these are people that are not displaced on 50, 60K a year, 70K. They're on you know, 150 to 200. Their lifestyle is associated with that. Yeah. And they're not skilled in anything else. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the thing is a lot of them have not gone out of their way to upskill in tech or digital-style stuff. Yeah. So I think that the hit is going to be hard. Yeah. Um, and so I'm very interested in terms of what the future of work looks like with automation and technology and what, what impact it's going to have on the white-collar worker and then what opportunity that creates to reskill these people.
0: I wonder the other thing that they might not have had to do much as well is – look internally about what they actually really care about and what they want to do, which...
1: (laughs) Well, that's what's given me work.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah.
1: So I'm interested in what makes you say that. So what gives you that perspective?
0: Probably because I was that
1: person as well.
0: But I think in in a lot of those jobs, about following the rules, head down, working really hard, doing what should be done and what's supposed to be done Mm. to, you know, I guess progress, and that work's... Pretty well, generally, but then when the moment of crisis happens, or there's a big displacement, or find uh, that that those rules have changed, which they can change yeah. quite quickly, being left thinking, "Oh well, what is it that I really care about anyway?" And you know what what skills do I have beyond the, the technical skills that I developed? You know what really makes me me, and how do I want to express that? And I think tapping into like things like emotion and intuition and those kind of things don't have to be done a lot of the time, but then at those moments, they, they're the skills that you need the most.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I am a firm believer that, as you say, there is a, a group of us that live our life by a societal definition of what happiness looks like not and have never, ever stopped to think about what our own definition of happiness looks like. And, I mean, that's basically created a platform for me to have a business. Yeah. And so what I believe is, and I mean, like you, I was this person, you know, I got to a point where I was 39 and I had this checklist, you know, it was get the degree, get a great job, go up the food chain in the corporate ladder. And basically I got to 39, I ticked every box, you know, I was at the absolute peak of my career. I had the dream job. I was living over in Perth as an expat, European cars in the driveway, massive house with a white picket fence, European travel, whatever you wanted. And I was sitting there going, how is it that I want for nothing and I've never been more lost? And, you know, then like you say, there was a series of events that had occurred that started to make me question everything and start to question what happiness looked like for me. And it's interesting because I think everyone's journey is different but so many people come to me and they're like, how can I be, you know, whether it's 39, 42, whatever, how can I be at this point in my life and not know what makes me happy. Mm. And I'm like, well, the reality is I think that we are so busy or we, busy is like the Achilles heel of our life, (laughs) yeah? yeah? yeah. We are so busy doing, and often I don't even think we question whether we should be doing, yeah, that we don't even have the headspace to think about this stuff. No. And so what I say to people is I actually help them create the headspace. So I, I have a whole series of tools and processes that I work through, but the first thing I say to people is you need to create the headspace. So how much time are you willing to invest in your happiness a week? You know, is it an hour or is it two hours? It doesn't matter. Anything is better than what you've got now. And so what you do is you schedule that time like you've you've got a meeting. And it's a meeting with yourself. And then I say to them, but don't schedule it at nine o'clock at night after you've had a busy day. Yeah. You've got to be kind to yourself and do it when you're at your highest energy. Yeah. So I recommend to a lot of people you either do it first thing in the morning or you do it on a weekend when you're not distracted by the day. So create the headspace. But, but that's why I think so many people, there's always a catalyst. And for some people, yeah, it's a I was going to ask you that. Yeah. yeah. There's a series of events or it's something major. But it's like people wake up one day and go, and often it's the ones with the most. That's what I find really interesting. You know, there's, there's two groups of clients that I work with. There's a lot of young people are so much smarter now. You know, the younger generation is always smarter than the generation before them. And so there's this group of people that I work with that are, a lot of them come to my workshops and they're sort of 20, maybe 27 to 35, and they are asking these questions so much earlier than us. And, you know, that, the conversation's similar, but as I say, they, they haven't had to endure the pain that the others have for a longer period of time. Yeah. Whereas often, as I say, the reason a lot of clients end up in tears in the first half an hour with me is because they just sit there, I think a lot of them are anxious. They're suffering from anxiety and, you know, they, they end up telling me that because they sit there and they're like, as I say, they've got to a point where they're like, I'm smart, you know, I'm educated, I've, I've got all this stuff, you know, whether it's the million-dollar house or what have you, and I'm, I'm freaking miserable.
2: Yeah.
1: And, I've got to, and, and I think yeah. it's that realisation that I have to start all over. And that, for many people, can be extremely yeah. overwhelming.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: Extremely. I mean, you know, I've done it, you've done it. It yeah. is overwhelming.
0: It is in that moment. Yeah, it's yeah. hard. It's hard. There's, maybe I've got a few questions coming out of that. One is, what's, well, do you, do you think, like, is the crisis absolutely necessary? <laughs> like, is there is there a way for people to get there without the crisis? And I guess I'm thinking about some of my friends my age, who I can see are in this in this zone. Like I can see it more clearly now than I've, you know, had that moment and a, a bit more removed from it. And some of them, they're not going to have that crisis because they're managing pretty well. And I'm almost a little bit more worried about them because they're not going to have this extreme kind of, I don't think, and they'll probably go through their whole life just, you know, being kind of happily happy and not realising it. In others I can see that there's a crisis brewing and I almost want to preempt it a little bit or kind of say, look, your health's going to or your marriage or whatever's going to explode here and that might be good in the end but there might be a way. It's harder but maybe you can get in before that and and change things. But I don't know, do you think that's possible without that catalyst or without that crisis? So I
1: think that there's kind of a a couple of groups. So the first group that you spoke about, I call them the settlers, so they're willing to settle. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Change is compromise. And so some people aren't willing to make that compromise, so they, they settle. It's like people that sit in unhappy relationships for their like the last generation. How many older people do you see together that have been together for 50 years? And it's like, oh, my God, they tolerate each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but they're not going anywhere. Because no. they settle. Because it's yeah. like there is a comfort in the known. The yeah. unknown is scary, even though you you know it could potentially make you happier. So the settlers are interesting because there is – have you heard of Bronnie Ware? No. So there's a palliative care nurse called Bronnie Ware who became quite famous. So what she did was she spent 15 years with the dying, but she was a bit smarter than most palliative care nurses in that she actually asked them their, their number one regret yeah. on their deathbeds. Okay. Yeah. She then wrote a blog that became a book because there was so much interest about it. And so the settlers are the people that I think Bronnie Ware interviewed and the number one regret of the dying was that I lived the life that others expected of me, not the life that I wanted for myself. So I think that those are the people, they just won't change. They yeah. will settle. And that's fine, you know. Some people are okay with that. There is a group that will be affected by a significant crisis, you know, whether it's a death in the family, whether it's a redundancy, whatever it is, and they'll go, shit, this is a wake-up call. I'm going to turn my life on its head. There's a group that are impacted by a series of events. It's not one event. It's almost like a build-up over a period of time, and then it's like that straw that breaks the camel's back. They're like, I can't take this anymore. Something's got to shift. Yeah. And I think it's interesting what you say about the people that you observe, you're almost wanting to intervene. (laughs) But I would say to you, experience like 20 years experience in change, whether it be large-scale organisational change, change in people's lives or, you know, change in professional development. People won't change until they're ready. And I see it all the time and that's why, you know, I don't, I don't sit there and sell my business. I don't need to. I talk about what I love doing. I talk about and, or I teach people how to make change in bite-sized pieces because that reduces the overwhelm. And the reality is with change, just taking one step is the most powerful thing that you can do. Yeah. But what happens and what I've observed now that I've been doing what I do for two years in this space is that people, like, people come to a workshop and they will be like they would have seen me at a workshop maybe a year ago and then all of a sudden they're sending me an email or they're calling me up and they're like, I saw you a year ago, came to your workshop and now I'm ready to do something. Yeah. And it's like that happens all the time or it might be six months ago. They're curious. They're interested. And like you say, you can see, you can see from the outside looking in as someone who's gone through it that there's, it's brewing. But the reality is it's like you can't tell someone to quit smoking. Until they're ready to do it, they won't do it. And so change, I don't think, and that's why organisational change is, I think, so often so badly received and so dysfunctionally delivered is because it's imposed mm. rather than engaged. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't think, yeah, I don't think I, yeah, I kind of needed what, what happened to me to get me there. And it became a good, for me, my, it became a social excuse. What
1: was your catalyst?
0: Separation, yeah, marriage, yeah. marriage breakdown. It's
1: a good one.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, it's a good, it's one. good one. And it became like I took a year off as a result, but it was like, well, maybe it was, maybe I felt because if I had taken a year off, I think it would have been a lot harder to do that if I didn't have an excuse to tell people why. Mm. And it wasn't. It kind of was the excuse, but it wasn't as well. Like I wanted to take that year off just because I wanted to stop and think about what I wanted to do. Yeah. Like that's actually, I probably wanted to do that for five years prior to that, you know, but that moment of, of crisis kind of in, it gave me a, a way to explain it to the masses yeah. <laughs> and to myself, I guess, as well. Yeah.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. So uh, yeah, I was very grateful for that happening because I might not have ever got to that place.
1: It's interesting yeah. what you talk, when you say you talk about brewing, you know. I haven't met one person, and I know in my circumstance it's the same, where it's been like just a, a switch has flicked overnight where it's like, oh, I, I think I might do this, I'm just going to do it. Often it's been going on for a number of years, and this is what I say about people being, needing to be ready to make change. Like for me, a lot of the stuff, in hindsight, when I look back, I've been mulling over this stuff for three years. Yeah. It took me that long. Yeah. Because I think, you know, it, 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 it's frightening like I say, it is the unknown. And yeah. when you're an adult, reinventing yourself is a lot harder than when you're a child and you change your mind. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's potentially what you're doing, you know.
0: Yeah. For people that might be at that moment of crisis or fearing a, a reinvention, mm. I know there were some things that I did that really helped me through that. But what, when you find people in that moment, what sort of things do you help them or do. encourage them to start doing?
1: Because of the overwhelm, I always like to try and start with something that shifts the focus to a positive focus, yeah, because change is often people sit in the negative with it, so it's a negative mindset, which yeah. is why they they struggle with doing it. So one of the first things I talk about other than creating the headspace to invest in your happiness, which is quite easy to do, the second thing I talk about is create a curiosity list. So, again, I think this this whole caught up in being so busy how often as grown ups do we sit down and think about all the things that we're curious about, that we'd like to know more about, that we probably know fuck all about? Yeah. Yeah. So, like I say, this might be the future of work for someone. For me, you know, I'm really curious about UX. I'm really cu- curious about design thinking. Mm. I'm curious about the future of work. I'm curious about automation. Yeah. So I say to people who sit there and say, I need, I, you know, I need to make a change, and I don't, I have no freaking idea where to begin. Sit down and write a curiosity list. Think about all the things you're curious about that you know you may know hardly anything about, or you may know something about, and write the list until you're exhausted. And when you can't think of anything else, then I say to people, put a star against the two that jump off the page the most. And so I encourage people then to just start exploring those two things. Yeah. Yeah. And so that by exploring, it could be reading, it could be going to a meetup, it could be reaching out to someone you know in that industry. But it's, it's an action, yeah? yeah? And so this is what helps break down the overwhelm. And like I was saying about one step, it's not about saying, okay, look, let's sit down and work out the perfect plan for you and this is where you're going to go next. And the, There is no freaking perfect plan when you are stepping into the unknown and so it's, it's almost like people need to unlearn what they've already learned. Yeah. And so by starting to get them to explore what they're curious about, it gets them excited and interested because it's something new um, and it gets them taking one step which builds courage and confidence it builds potentially a new network that they might or not have had. Yeah. Um, and it's a start. And by doing that, like I say, the courage, the confidence, and, and just getting them to have a little bit of momentum, that's the first thing. And then, you know, it's sorts of things that I, I love to look at. It really depends on the client. But, you know, I'm a big believer in purpose. And it's funny because I often say up until three years ago, if you had have said to me, what's your purpose? I'd have been like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like no one when I was in the corporate world was talking about purpose. It was, I would never have even considered exploring, you know, my, why I exist. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, that, that would have been foreign. So, and again, a lot of the people that come to me have never thought about this stuff. And so I help them unpack or start to explore, you know, what matters to them in their lives and what brings them happiness and what gives them energy. Yeah. So all of this stuff is stuff that people never think about. And again, by starting to talk about that stuff and say, well, if this makes you happy, if this brings you energy, if this is what you feel the world needs more of, if these are the great skills that you have, you know, that are of the most value to people, how can we, and you know, how can we bring all of that together and look at possibility? And I think because I sit across, well, you know, now I sit across the corporate world, the entrepreneurial world, the social enterprise world, I have so much more breadth of understanding of what. Is out there in terms of possibility that a lot of people don't even consider for themselves based on their skill sets and what they enjoy. And equally, the connections that I have, and these are things that I never value, that I can now go, you know, a lot of the people that, a lot of my clients, when they come to me, not only am I helping them in terms of unpacking where to next, I can connect them in a way that is totally unique because nine times out of 10, I'll know someone that can help them further. Yeah. And that's in the industry, which is powerful because, you know, So much of it is who you know. So, yeah, that's that's probably where I start. It's with curiosity because it's, like I say, to sit there and say, right, we're going to work out the plan, it just, these people don't need more overwhelm. Like I say, what I do is I teach people change in bite-sized pieces because it's all about building the bravery and the momentum and I often say to people they need to trust me and believe that the action will breed the clarity. And you know this, yeah? The more you do and the more you test and the more you fail and the more you pivot, the clearer things become. A and that's what I mean by unlearning everything. You know, when you come from a corporate world, you don't do anything without a perfect plan. You wouldn't get funding. Yeah, that's right. I wouldn't get budgets to do things without a plan <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and a budget and everything yeah. else. Whereas in this space, none of that, the perfect plan won't serve you.
0: No. A lot of those things, looking back now, there's yeah, they're the things that I started to do as well you know, learning through doing as opposed to learning then doing. (laughs) Yeah, just I started going to meetups and some of them I hated and some of them I liked and then that started a momentum of its own, just doing some random web surfing, some reading books that I wouldn't normally read and just seeing what got me a bit excited and I think the other thing I did was surround myself with people who were able to, I guess, just let me blabber on a bit and then notice what they saw lighting me up and reflect that back to me and mm. say that, that seems pretty interesting. You've said that a few times. or So I think, yeah, some of those things were good. And that, another thing I did was just take really good care of myself too. That was like my number oh, one thing. Huge, to, yeah.
1: And that's yeah. the thing for me as well. I think I'm so much more in tune now with, I mean, I can help people make change, but people, a lot of people come to me and they're like, I want to make change in my job. You know, my job doesn't make me happy. I want to make a career change. Yeah. It's never about the job. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, what people or what I teach people is that if you can work out what makes you happy in life, what you're meant to be doing work-wise will fall out as a byproduct of that. Yeah. But the wellness piece that um, sits under all of that is probably one of the most important. And so many people that I work with are not looking after themselves. You know, like I say, a lot of people um, are on anxiety medication. Um, You can see they're 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 at breaking point, even though you know they're amazing people with amazing skills. And they're not, they're not doing the things that give them energy. You know, they're not eating well. They're not um, exercising. Like all That's the stuff that always falls away, first of all. Yeah. So whatever I do, I'm a big believer in a plan on a page. If you can't make it work on a page, then it's not worth doing. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, a lot of what we do when we actually get to the planning stage is it's not a plan with, a, you know, 30 actions in a, in a project plan. It's, okay, what's, what's three things that we can do in the next month that'll move you closer to what your happiness looks like. Hmm. And there's always one thing in there that's around wellbeing. It has to be. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have your health, you can spend all the time in the world on this stuff and the reality is it won't matter.
0: That's right. Well, enjoy it. Can I, I asked you about, you know, how you sort of get your clients through these moments. Can I turn that question back on you as yeah. well? And you talk about what was, you know, you're an exec at Shell. What what happened? What was the catalyst for you? and how did you transition?
1: yeah, so I was one of those people where it wasn't one specific event, it was a build up,
0: yeah,
1: so um oh, there was a series of things that I observed that perhaps I would have ignored before, you know, or not have but they started to not sit so well with me, so I think I kind of started to get in that space where I felt my values were perhaps misaligned and There was a day at work where I'd been put in a position, I was working four days a week, so it was part-time. It was probably working six days a week technically. Mm -hmm. I was carrying two jobs. Um, I had a young child who was two and a half years old. You know, I had no family support. I was living in Perth and I was trying to be perfect in every aspect of my life and i shell was renowned for internal audits and i got called into an audit for this billion dollar project and you know they basically interrogate you it's like a police interview because they want to pull out all the flaws not the flaws but anything that's not going well in the project so they can close the gap because they're investing billions of dollars and they don't want things to fall over and they just basically it was two senior execs from overseas and they asked me a couple of questions and i think i was just so burnt out and exhausted and frazzled the questions hit a raw point and i burst into tears and it was probably one of the most humiliating moments in my life. As someone who was renowned for resilience and keeping it all together, that for me was probably the start of things really shifting. And so then what happened was I was at the end of my two-year assignment in Perth and you always have a choice to go home. So they can offer for you to stay, but if you want to go home, they can't make you stay. And so I was at the end of the two years, we wanted to stay in Perth and they asked me to stay, but they were selling the business back in Melbourne, which was basically all of the retail and sales and marketing business that I came from. And so they said to me, that business is being sold off. We want you to stay here permanently. All the terms and conditions will change. So I'd just be like anybody else in Perth. And here's our offer for you to stay or you can choose if you want to go home, but you risk being made um, redundant or being sold off to a Dutch trading house and working for a company that you know nothing about. And I, that's when I started to question everything. And I was like, well, I'd like to stay, but the offer doesn't make it financially viable. I've always done the right thing by the company. Maybe it's time I start doing the right thing by me. And I said to them, I'm going to choose to go home, which was probably one of the hardest things I've done. I think they were just shocked. You know, after 16 years, no one could believe it. And people told me I was crazy. And so I'm going to, I was, I'm going to go home. And then I was praying for the redundancy there was a lot of to and froing to try and get me to stay and then two weeks before I got back to Melbourne they rung me up and said, we'll pay you out. <laughs> and I was in the backyard, I'll never forget it, in Perth and I was dancing. <laughs> and I was like, and for me it was like a sign. And what had also been happening in the background is I'd been on a course about two months earlier and it turned out the course was um, a change management course. I was sitting next to the head of HR and BHP Billiton, And during the course, people got to share some of their work, and I shared the work that I'd been doing at Shell, and she headhunted me for a role at BHP Billiton. And it was the job of a lifetime working with their um, exec leadership team, traveling London and New York, you know, every two months. It was amazing in their external affairs team. So that was all going on in the background. So when, when they were like, well, if you go home, you risk this, I was like, well, I'll be in BHP. You know, I'll be fine. So I came back to Melbourne with the, you know, with a pocket full of money and the intent of just getting back on the bandwagon and going to BHP Billiton. I went through four months of interviews and it fell through. I didn't get the job. They gave it to the other guy. So I was sitting there with, for the first time in my life, you know, no job and I had money so it bought me time. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to sit here and think about what I want to do. And I had a young son, and I think kids give you perspective, like I was saying to you earlier. And I knew he was going to be going to school, and I'd never really been a proper parent because I'd been called back for maternity leave early but for the next great opportunity. Yeah. And so I decided to spend time with him, and basically I went and did what I call the 100 coffees. And so I started getting curious and I started learning about things like conscious capitalism and businesses that were driven by purpose over profit. And I was like, this is really interesting. I've never seen anything like this. So I started reaching out to all these people doing amazing stuff that I admired that I'd never met. And I think one person out of 100 said no. And they all sat down and had coffee with me over like six months. And without even realising it, it was like market research for where I was going to go next. And I built, built this whole new network that then became some of my greatest friends. Like these people have become friends, but also, you know, I've collaborated with these people. And so out of that, the idea of Be Kindred was born. But Be Kindred started off as an online collaboration platform for small business owners to get better at the commercial side of business. And then within four months, I pivoted because I kept getting phone calls saying, how have you reinvented yourself so quickly and become so successful? And I am sitting there going, gee, I must be nailing this social media thing because I haven't made any money. What was this perception? But I suppose that was a bit of reality check for me because it was like, it's so interesting because I'm always quite transparent about, you know, what's going on in my business. I just thought it was so interesting that I was sitting there, you know, trying to struggle to start a business and having no idea what I was doing, even though I'd managed multi-million dollar businesses and other people's money and people were watching thinking I was nailing it. Yeah. (laughs) But I think all people were seeing was someone that was perhaps being a bit courageous and just trying to have a go. And that's why I shifted the business because I was like, well, there's something in everything that I've done, you know, um, in the last six months or whatever it was, was about finding what happiness looks like for me and what does a happy life look like. And so not only did I leave, the corporate career was the catalyst to then turn the whole life on its head. So left the 16-year career, decided to leave my 18-year relationship, moved the family from Perth back to Melbourne, started my own purpose-driven company. You know, I changed everything in my life other than my son. (laughs) That doesn't get, you know, you weren't a change expert. You can't have more change than that. <laughs> um, but whilst it was the most frightening thing that I ever did, I say to people constantly, I've never earned less money and I have never in my life felt more fulfilled in yeah. what I do. Yeah. And I feel like there's this whole, you know, synchronicity. It's like everything. that They talk about this state of flow. Do you know anything about quantum physics? A little bit, yeah. yeah. yeah talk about it though. So yeah. They talk about, you know, being the more the more conscious and present you are, and the more the more energy it creates, and then the more your life comes into flow. Yeah. And flow is kind of like you know it's like like I say it's that synchronicity where everything feels like it's just working as it should. That's where I feel like I'm at now. Yeah. And so you know I don't I, don't, well, I mean you know I don't aspire to earn the money that I earned before. If I do great, it means I can impact more lives, and that would be fantastic. But I've realised that you can have a very good life on a lot less and the things that make you happy are not the things that we're led to believe make us happy. So often we believe it's status, it's money, you know, it's material items and so everyone's there competing for those things. I have workshopped with over a 1,000 people in the last 12 months and one of the things I always do at the start of the workshop is I get people to bring up on their phone a picture of what happiness looks like for them. And it's either something around human connection Something about experiences, something you know where they're present in a moment. Mm. Um, it's it's all the things that don't cost money, <laughs> yeah. or it's it's children or dogs, yeah. you know, or pet, it's pets. Yeah. So, and and I find that really interesting because we're all striving for the money to buy more stuff, but the things that fill people up the most are the things that are often free. Yeah,
0: I'm just thinking that if. I brought up a picture of, say, like a, an amazing house or an amazing car. What, how would I describe the feeling that it actually wouldn't be happiness? No. Pride almost, or something like that. Something else that's not happiness. Yeah. No one ever
1: brings up a picture of their work, I can tell you that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's, It's interesting and that's probably, that was a bit of an epiphany for me. Like it was an exercise that I started to do as a connector. So I basically say bring up something that makes you happy and then go and meet with someone that you haven't met and sit down and share with them why that makes you happy because it's a brilliant way to connect people because they're not talking about how important they are or what job they have, which no one really cares about. They're talking about what matters to them and and it's an easy way because there's often, as I say, it's a way for someone to relate. When I realised that, I was like, I started to write it down, I was like, all of the stuff that makes people happy is the stuff that's free. And it's the stuff, as I say, like we were saying earlier, it's the stuff that gets pushed out of the way when we're busy.
0: How do you describe your purpose?
1: Mm. Oh, my God, I rewrote it this morning. Did you? That's why yeah. I'm struggling for words. So I kind of say I've got, well, two, two purposes. So, And one feeds the, off the other. So my main purpose is to raise a human being, a young man who is respectful, who is curious, and who understands that he's in control of his own destiny, and that he can positively impact the world through whatever he chooses to do. So my purpose is to show him what's possible, for example, Mm. because it's so much more powerful than telling him what to do. Yeah. Yeah? (sighs) So that that's my number one purpose and that's what led, led me to do the work that I now do. And so I say that my purpose is really around I want to teach a million women that I always put a number on things because, you know, whether you achieve it or not is not the point. It's a line in the sand and it's something to work. I want to teach a million women um, how to nail happiness in work and life. And I say I want to do it by 2020 because, again, I want to, have some sort of goal. But my my purpose is all about having positive impact on the lives of others. And the best way that I can do that with my skills is to help people appreciate what does make them happy and weave more of it into their day to day. Because I'm a firm believer, you only get one life and damn, you might as well make the most of it. And you can't take any of the shit that you accumulate with you. And if you get a second life, it's a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I think a lot of people would like to be happier. I'm, I'm sick of. It saddens me how much anxiety and depression there is in our world. It is the norm now. I speak to more people with it than without it. And when I say that, these are not just clients. It's in social circles. And and it's not you know it, it used to be that we assumed that people with um, anxiety and depression were from a certain certain social background and um, you know maybe didn't have uh, as much, but the reality is that it knows no boundaries. And often I think that there is there are a lot more of these people in the professional world than we care to admit. Mm,
0: yeah, and like you say, with potentially some rapid changes. At- coming upon us that could accelerate more and have, I guess, I guess deeper impacts as well. Absolutely.
1: And well, that's why I talk about happiness and it's not like happiness in terms of every day you're running around joyous. That's not what I'm talking about. It's how can you make the most of what you've got so that you've got more of it in your day to day. Shit shit stuff's going to happen. Yeah. Can't change that. Helping people learn that they are in control of this stuff and that they have a choice and at the end of the day a lot of it comes down to how you choose to invest your time and your energy and the mindset yeah. that you have um i think is powerful and so when i talk about making if i think if i can make women happier what are the onflow effects of that in terms of families in terms of communities in terms of innovation you know it sounds like it's small but i just i look at the bigger picture in terms of if i can make 10 women happier how many other lives does that impact and also it's like someone losing weight yeah when someone's happier People will come up, you know, when someone's lost a lot of weight, they'll come up and go, shit, how'd you do that? Yeah, and so when women are more happier and they were obviously not that way before, people will start asking.
0: Yeah. It's infectious. It's awesome. Yeah. I've got three more questions for you. Go for it. Um, the first one's a bit of a speculative question, but it's, it's about a curiosity of mine, which is around what you're talking about work and rapid changes in work and what the future of work actually yeah. looks like curious what you think, what you're starting to imagine there or contemplate there, and also what might happen if humans don't really need to work anymore, you know, what, what might our oh, project wow. be? Yeah. Anyway, what are, you, what are your thoughts around that, that whole area? Oh, I think the challenges,
1: as, as you were saying, that are going to, we're going to come up against in the next five, 10, 10 years in terms of displaced workers are going to be fascinating, unprecedented. Because I think that there will be a lot of people displaced, like I say, that were on big salaries. And so think of the financial implications of that when these people can't pay their mortgages. You know, Because people think that people who earn shitloads of money have shitloads of money, but I can tell you they don't. They spend more money. Yeah. My experience is they spend a lot more money. They are just as leveraged as the person that, that has 70 grand a year. They just have more expensive tastes. Now, I'm generalising. But I can tell you when I was over in the absolute boom in Perth and people were getting paid $150,000 to clean toilets, people were spending the money. And the people I was surrounded with, I think there was three people in my social network that I knew that had no debt, three, and they were all middle-aged. Most of them had, you know, anywhere upwards of $1.5 million of debt. Yeah. Yeah? So what I'm concerned about is, one, the displacement and how you reskill these people into something that's going to give them longevity in a new world. Two, their yeah. openness to that, because a lot of these people will have their ego significantly damaged, and a lot of them are defined by their work without even realizing it. And I know that because that was me. When you took away my title and I was sitting there for six months without it, and I had to stand at a barbecue and talk about what I did, I felt like I was nothing. <laughs> yeah. It was really interesting. Yeah. And I also think, you know, what's going to happen? Like, so the financial piece is interesting because what's going to happen to our economy when these people can't service? You know, what's going to happen to the housing side of things? Yeah. All of that. So so I think that there will be economic implications. You know, we we haven't had a housing crisis for a very long time and everything is cyclical no matter how you look at it. And so I I honestly believe we are due for some, you know, some significant financial downturn. I'm not hoping it but I think sometimes a correction is a healthy thing. I think there is going to be a whole host of opportunities that open up in terms of business opportunities to help these people find mm. new work and reskill mm. and i think the learning curve is going to be far greater because i think the older that you get the adaptation or the um, to new technologies you know it's like trying to teach your grandma how to use a computer yeah i'm not saying that's this is my my generation but trying to teach people who have never learned digital and they might have had teams that managed digital, but they've never had to do it themselves. Yeah. It's going to be hard. Yeah. I think that there will be really interesting opportunities out of it, but equally I wouldn't be surprised if there's a financial downturn out of it.
2: Yeah.
1: And I have not considered your other question, and now I'm bringing that up at the next Wine and Whiteboards because I think that's a brilliant question, if we didn't have to work. So if we didn't have to work, the first thing I would ask is how would we make money? So how would we sustain our lifestyles if we didn't work? Mm. So if you, if you could tell me what that would look like, then I could perhaps. So assuming that people through some other means had the, financial, the finances to be able to, to do.
0: Do something, yeah. Say automation took us to a point where materially everyone was at, a, at some kind of base level. You know, and we'd, we had to work, well, substantially less, let's say, or, you know, not at all. Like what would humans, would we implode? Like, would I we think know the not- prospect
1: of that is frightening. <laughs> like, And that's just like I said, that's the first time I've thought of it. The prospect of that is frightening. Yeah. Because it, it could go either way. People could start to go into all this space of curiosity and starting to do things. People could actually start caring for each other more. Yeah, and start giving back to charities and giving with their time and, you know, being invested in communities, you know, and actually humanly connecting. I think that would be the best thing that could happen, you know, people starting to spend more time with people in their community and giving back through their time. That'd be amazing. But the other end of the spectrum is you could end up with a lot of fat people sitting on the couch watching TV. (laughs) I mean, who knows?
2: Totally. Do you know what I
1: mean? Yeah. I think that there would have to be some programs or some incentives in place by the government or whatever to actually get people doing stuff. Yeah. I think that's where the the focus would shift to. Yeah. Because if I think there'd be a lot of people who, if they didn't have to show up or they didn't have to do something, there's a lot to be said for purpose. Yeah. That's why we talk about it. Yeah. And I think a person without purpose, well, it's like a boat without a navigation system. Mm. So if you took that purpose away, which for a lot of people is, their work, you'd need to re- you'd need to help them Correct. redefine it. Yeah,
0: I agree. I agree that you would. That would be the thing, and it'd be fascinating to see what those purposes came out ended up being. Yeah,
1: when when work wasn't an option. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah like oh, I might use that. That's really interesting. I love that question. That's probably the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> yeah,
0: I've started thinking about that a little bit because I've a couple of books that I've read have really got me thinking about well. Okay, like the automation that you're talking about, it's probably within my lifetime. Oh, easily. And also maybe the extension of human life is within my lifetime as well. And like what what are the implications for us in that? Couple more questions. First one is about (laughs) first one's about, so you've you've got this sort of 2020 vision in mind. Is this something that posts that that you daydream about disrupting one day that you think I'd love to be part of that? that's sort of my next thing or maybe, you know, down the track even further, I want to be, that's a movement or a disruption I want to be part of.
1: Yeah, there is. And so for me, the biggest challenge I've had in the work that I now do is I want to have positive impact on the lives of many. So I don't want a business that's a lifestyle business. I want a business that's got scalability and is global, yeah. And I've already started, I've worked with clients in Dubai, I've worked with clients in London. So, and that's just through online programs, like an online program I've run. But, and I love what I do now, but it's like how do I take that to the next evolution? And it might be in a totally different way. I've got this very strong desire to have some sort of tech piece in what I do. I'm, I'm passionate about technology. I love it. Yeah. And I, I don't have the brilliant idea, but one thing that has kind of gone off like a a light in my head is – Wine and Whiteboards is a passion project of mine. And so Wine and Whiteboards, for people who haven't heard of it, basically what we do is we bring together a group of curious random strangers from all walks of life and we sit them down in like a, well, we're using the penthouses at the art series hotels at the moment, yeah. in like a lounge, so a comfortable environment. And basically they can bring to the whiteboard session one challenge in society that they're passionate about. It can be business-related. It can be the future of work. It can be a social issue, whatever they want. And so everyone gets to bring one issue that they're passionate about. We list them on the board and then basically everyone gets one vote and you can't vote for what you put on the board. And we pick the top two issues and basically we sit there and we problem-solve them <laughs> over wine. Yeah, that, for me, it started in my lounge room and it's, it's gone from there. And everyone that comes absolutely loves it because when it started, it was, for me, it was all about, okay, what, what are we going to solve? Like We're going to solve something big here. This would be amazing. What's going to come out of it? And the ideas that come out of it are freaking amazing. But what I realized quite quickly was that it wasn't about solving a world issue. It was that people were starved for human connection. So in a society where we've never been more connected, mm. we've never been more disconnected. And people love meeting, most people love meeting new people, especially people that are curious and interested in stuff that they care about. Yeah. Um, and so it became about providing a unique experience and connecting people in a totally different way. But for me, when I start to think about this and dream in the future, I'm like, what if, what if you could wine and whiteboards anywhere in the world? What if it was like, what's that, is it Words With Friends? Yeah. What if it was like, why am on whiteboards with friends? What if I could be in Switzerland and you could be in Vietnam and we had a whiteboard that we just kept adding to and we were both passionate about mm. the same social issue? Yeah. And then what if we could take that one step further and actually create like, I don't think, I like the idea of a think tank, but I'm not a big fan of just thinking, I'm a big fan of doing. What if we could, could create action tanks with people from around the world where they actually solve these problems? And I think technology is a beautiful enabler to do that. The whiteboard's whiteboard's brilliant because people love being able to be heard, and when you capture it on the right whiteboard, and it's written down. People feel validated. Totally. Um, and like I say, it's it's you can still have human connection through technology. So I mean, that's that's something cool. that I love. Yeah. I don't know how I would make money out of it, <laughs> but. It, it, it plays to having a positive impact on people's lives. It plays to human connection, which is something I freaking love. It brings up, you know, talking about things that I'm totally fascinated in. So that's the other thing for me. Whilst this was like a passion project, I get so much insight out of these conversations in terms of people's perspectives. It creates empathy. People want to understand how people arrive at a different perspective rather than judge them for being different. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's kind of something that I'm a bit... Passionate about, but I haven't worked it through in terms of a business model.
0: You're starting to work it through by the sound of it, just by doing it. <laughs> I'm coming next week as well. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I'd be interested <laughs> to hear your thoughts. But yeah, I, I just think that would be amazing. And the other thing that's amazing about it, again, like I say, the clarity comes in the action. If you'd have told me this when we started doing this like twelve months ago, I would have said, "Get out! This is crazy." But Imagine from those whiteboards and those conversations and that problem solving—that's insight that companies could use. You've got innovation captured on the whiteboard. Yeah. And it's 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 market research, but it's the best type. It's qualitative. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a whole other avenue for the information to be used.
2: Yeah.
1: So Great. yeah. Cool. <laughs> Sorry, you—I didn't even realise how excited I was about that. You've just given me a bit of a an awakening.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so the last question is about you and tying it back to the name of the podcast and what this podcast is all about, Subtle Disruption, and a small change that you've made in your own life that's had a significant impact or an ongoing impact that would be interesting for other people to hear about. Well,
1: A small change?
0: A subtle change,
1: yeah. Oh, wow, that's a good question because I feel like everything I've changed has been huge. <laughs> but, yeah. I haven't, but I probably do small changes every day. Riding a bike. Mm. So I moved to Peran six months ago and the only hangover I have got from my old life, I've got an Audi A5, right, which I'm, try- I'm going to sell, to be honest, because I just feel so excessive for who I am now. Yeah. And I, I probably drive 5,000 kilometres a year. So ridiculous. When I moved to Peran, and when everything was on my doorstep, I've got two bikes. I've got a road bike that I used to ride when I had the time and I've got a, a hybrid and because everything was so close, I'm like, damn this, I'm just going to pull the bike out again. And that was a small change that I made, but I, I can't explain the enjoyment and the clarity that it gives me. So I ride to meetings now, like I'm like 42, and you know, like an ex professional, and I'm on my bike. <laughs> and I'm like, "It's it, you gain, if you had <laughs> have told me I would do this, I would have said you were nuts, but I get so much pleasure out of it. It makes me happy that I'm not polluting the world in some – like I'm reducing my my emissions. And it does like it, – it gives me clarity. There's something there's something freeing about being on the bike. Yeah. So that's probably one small change that I've made recently that I, I absolutely love.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: that's awesome. I love that change. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it took
1: me a while to think of a small one though because I'm – I'm if I make change, often it's like turn things upside down. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm like you say, I'm a big believer – And I, you know, the the bathing suit moment, you know about this?
0: No. No. I think I vaguely do, but yeah. Yeah. So
1: um, earlier this year I was asked to speak at a conference in front of 100 professional women and the topic was tactics for happy change. So how could I share what I've learned around bringing more happiness into my life so that people could walk out the door tomorrow and be able to start to make simple changes? And so I had this epiphany three weeks before because I was like, how am I going to stand out in a, at a conference of rock star speakers? I'm on at 2.30 in the afternoon. It's graveyard shift. Um, and, <laughs> you know, what's the number one message? Because people only take away one message. And my number one message is all of, always about if you want to make change, you need to get learn to get comfortable in discomfort. That is the number one thing that you need to learn because nothing amazing happens when you're comfortable. And so I was like, how am I going to convey this to a room of 100 women? And I had one of those moments, and you would know this now in the space, where it's like two o'clock in the morning and I wake up and I was like, oh my God, that's it. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I'm going to stand up there and I'm going to take my dress off and I'm going to stand there in my bathing suit. Because there won't be a woman in that room that's, that's never had body image issues, because I reckon every woman does, even if they're small, that cannot relate to how uncomfortable it would be for me to stand up there. Yeah. And it would make them understand my point about getting comfortable with discomfort, because... By standing up there and being that uncomfortable, they could easily relate to me. And you know what? I had their full attention. Oh, yeah. Um, And so, yeah, I talk about being comfortable in discomfort. So that was a beautiful example of it. And what was unbelievable to me in that moment was that so much amazingness came out of being comfortable in discomfort, allowing myself to be truly vulnerable. One was I've delivered – Talks in front of audiences of up to a 1,000 people and, they, you know, they're always responsive but, Jesus, the engagement I had in that room was unbelievable. The amount of women that came up to me afterwards and said, I've been sitting on doing something for ages that I've been fearful of and it's like you've just given me permission to do it because it's nowhere near as scary as what you just did. Yeah. And so for me, and for me it was probably the first time in all the work that I've done on myself in the last three years where I realised that the only validation that I needed in anything that I did was my own. So that was enough. I walked out the room and I was like, that is enough for me. <sighs> but hilarious. what happened after that was that um, I shared it on social media and talked a little bit about why I did it and it went viral. And so within like six days it had over 41,000 views of my profile on LinkedIn. Oh, and wow. that was what was interesting too. It went viral on LinkedIn. Like who goes viral on LinkedIn? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so for me, again, that was such an insight because there was I was getting emails from all around the world and there was so people like Naomi Simpson weighed into the argument on whether it was a publicity stunt or whether it was actually, you know, um, a valid move. I had the woman who's the CEO of Women on Boards. She wrote a whole blog on what I did. Yeah. You know, like it was crazy. And I was like, why is this creating such a stir? And it was because there's so much talk out there at the moment around being more authentic. You know, and leaders being more authentic. And it's like why don't we stop talking about being fucking authentic and actually just be who we are. And I think yeah. people kept saying this is a leader who walks your talk. You know, I was quite happy to talk about getting comfortable with discomfort but actually do it and show yeah. people what it looks like. So, yeah, getting comfortable with discomfort. If you want to leave people with a message, that's my message, guys. The magic happens in the discomfort.
0: That's a great way to finish. I'm so glad that story came out right at the end as well.
1: <laughs> I won't be doing it again. I did it once and then I spoke to a guy when it started to go viral because I had this oh, shit moment and he said, I said to him, I don't know what I'm meant to do with all this attention. Like how do I make the most of this? This could never happen again. And how do I make the most of it for my business? And he turned around to me and he said, you don't need to do this again. Now you talk about why you, do, you did what you did. And I did. I wrote a whole blog on it and then the blog, you know, had over I think you know, 8,000 views on LinkedIn and, and people loved that. So, yeah, it was very scary but it, it was probably one of the best things I've ever done.
0: Penny, thanks so much for sharing that story and all the stories. It's so good <laughs> to be sitting here in your lounge room and, yeah, inviting me to your house. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for listening. The question I was left pondering after my time with Penny was, is there something I'm avoiding doing because I'm afraid of the discomfort it may bring me? If you feel like sharing your thoughts on my conversation with Penny, you can do so by posting something on the Facebook page, through Twitter or Instagram, or even by sending me an email to adam at disruptors.com. And of course, let me know if there are subtle disruptors you think I should know about. Next week, I'll be having a short winter break with a new episode of the podcast coming out the following week. I'm Adam Murray, and I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected, and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. Bye for now.